Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in this space and help lead the charge toward a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm here today with my co-host, Matthew Gold, co-founder and CEO of Unstoppable Domains, and our guest, Jay Graber, creator at Happening and a member of the Twitter Blue Sky team, which I'm really excited to talk to her about. Welcome, Jay. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, yeah. The Blue Sky team doesn't exist yet, but I'm a part of the volunteer group. The volunteer group. Yes. Thank you for clarifying that. I know you've been in the crypto space for a while now. How did you get interested in crypto in the first place? So I first heard about cryptocurrency actually back in like, I don't know, 2010 or 2011 when I went to China and I had a friend who was working at like Microsoft as maybe an intern or researcher, I forget. And so I ended up getting interested in virtual currencies and ended up starting a time bank at my school, which is a kind of uh, community currency that uses time as a unit of currency to like encourage reciprocity. These were like trust-based currencies, uh, not a blockchain. But I ended up doing research on like local currencies like Ithaca hours, time banks, and also Bitcoin. And this was like an independent study I designed for myself, but I didn't pursue it after school. And I actually got back into it when I moved out to the Bay in 2015 to start learning software engineering and become a developer. And I met a friend at a hackathon who ran this enterprise blockchain startup. And he actually hired me to my first uh, developer job. And that was in the blockchain world. And I just like kept doing stuff. Then um, after that job, I actually went and worked at the Bitcoin mine of my friend who I met in China and like spent six months working at a Bitcoin and Ethereum mine. Wow. Okay. So you kind of just dove right in and made it your work to get into the space. So I'm sure that made it easier to learn about it. And now in 2021, there's a lot more resources than you had back in 2010 when you first heard about it. What are some of your favorite resources in the space today? As you know, I know you do a lot of research on this stuff, whether it's blogs or, you know, people on Twitter or Reddit forums, or whatever the case may be, for somebody who's new to the space and wants to learn more, where would you direct them? Yeah, I don't know. In 2010, I didn't do very good research and like Bitcoin was really sketchy. I like tried to buy it once and got sketched out by like the the money order or whatever I was doing. But I had some friends who bought some and like, you know, learned a little bit about it. In 2015, when I got back into it, there was more stuff out there. That was kind of like the R3, like blockchain, enterprise blockchain era, I guess, and pre-ICOs. And so um, I ended up doing just a lot of reading of whatever I could get my hands on and including some like cryptography textbooks. And I was interested in cryptography independent of cryptocurrencies because it's the only way you can get privacy in the digital world. And even though there's a lot more information out there now, I still think I would recommend people to learn a bit about cryptography and distributed systems and distributed consensus because these things really underpin a lot of the innovation and understanding these systems help you separate the fact from the fiction out there. Got it. And then if you were to explain this whole space to somebody who's new to it in a couple of sentences, what would you say to get them excited to learn more? I try to avoid hyping things too much. So I just try to explain like, you know, limitations and capabilities. So depending on what the context is, I tell people a blockchain gives you a shared global database that no single party controls. And you might wonder why you need that until you think about all the cases in which um, like for money, for example, if you know a single party controls the database where you're printing money, you can't really trust that, right? 
And so the innovation really was like figuring out how do you get distributed consensus on the state of the database that doesn't let anyone cheat. And then like when it comes to use cases, when I explained Bitcoin to my mom originally, I was trying to get at different angles. And then I told her, so it's a form of money that belongs to the owner of a single piece of information, your private key. And this doesn't require a bank. So you can just memorize like a passphrase and cross border and retrieve it on the other side. And my mom lived through the cultural revolution in China. And so this like intuitively stuck for her. So I think like depending on the person, different things like intuitively make sense because there's a lot of different dimensions to like, you know, what a single global database could be used for. And I think money is, you know, primarily one of those things. You just gave me a, a huge conversation starter with my parents. So thank you so much for that. Also, I'm just wondering, what do you see as some of the biggest limitations that are keeping people from entering into the space? So a major challenge is key management. And just like that's an impediment to usability because like usability doesn't get better until you have um, not just on the user interface side, but also on like the just custody and different key management schemes that you can come up with. I think like there's new innovations in this space that require like less user understanding of how private keys work. But still, when it comes down to it, that's just something that's really hard for users to grasp. And even if you do grasp it, so many ways to shoot yourself in the foot. You know, things like MetaMask added a lot of usability to the ecosystem, but still you have to remember seed words. And it's like a browser extension, which like people are un unsure about the security dimensions of. So I think long term, maybe um, you could totally handle private keys like at the hardware level or, you know, in the browser, maybe ideally like down further down the stack at the hardware level. And so the way like Apple does Apple Pay and stuff, you know, they're handling so much on device. You don't even have to think about the security dimensions. So long term, if we could, you know, get crypto private keys or like decentralized web ID keys like integrated at that level, then it would fix the usability challenge. But that's as new adopters, it's really hard to change things at that level. All right. Well, I want to dive into the blue sky stuff. But before I do that, I saw that in that previously you had worked at Zcash and actually helped them to launch Zcash. So for people listening who aren't familiar, what is Zcash, first of all, and then talk about that whole experience? Yeah, so Zcash is a privacy-focused cryptocurrency, which adds encryption to transactions. So the difference about like Zcash as opposed to like Monero or some other privacy coins is it actually encrypts the whole transaction and then uses a zero-knowledge proof, which is where the Z in Zcash comes from, to prove that the transaction is still valid, even though it's encrypted. And so this creates something that, you know, you have a transparent and shielded addresses in Zcash, and this creates a form of money that can be act much more like cash, like physical cash in the real world, where you can't track where it came from and where it's going. Whereas like on the Bitcoin blockchain or any other non-private blockchain, basically you can track the whole history of where money's moved. And that makes a very transparent ledger that actually has worse privacy than cash. You're obviously an early adopter in the space, even when you were at Zcash, that was back in 2016, which is still, you know, I, I don't think people are really getting into this until like now, like 2021. So back in 2016, when you were helping launch Zcash and this was your full time job, did you get a lot of support from your community or were people like, what, like, what the heck is this? It sounds sketchy. Like they didn't understand what you were doing. Yeah, actually at the time, I, I guess my community was a lot of people in the digital activism world because right out of college, I started working at 
organizations kind of like the EFF, um, Free Press, Fight for the Future, these kinds of digital activism works. And they worked on issues like surveillance, net neutrality. So like these people really cared about and understood digital privacy. So actually compared to Bitcoin, you know, when I talk about Zcash, it's like, well, okay, like at least it's private, whereas like Bitcoin doesn't really respect privacy. But then I think there's a lot of skepticism then and still now about cryptocurrencies in general because of the ways in which it's this like, you know, there's like a lot of libertarian ideals and then like, you know, in many ways they can exacerbate inequality. And so like, I think a lot of activists are like skeptical of it, but I remember reading about Zcash and like uh, someone posted, it was like the Edward Snowden, Julian Assange kind of like part of the digital activism world. And that's where I actually first heard about it. Um, so I think there was more like goodwill towards Zcash at the time than actually towards Bitcoin. We actually have talked a lot about privacy on here. And one of the things that we've been talking about is actually privacy in the case of these now, these central bank digital currencies that these countries are looking in. And I think that people are underestimating how important privacy is going to be when we start talking about having um, digital transactions as a part of everything that you do. And like right now, I don't think people are really thinking about the privacy part where they're skipping over it uh, because they're not using Bitcoin to buy everything yet, right? They're not using cryptocurrency to buy everything. If cryptocurrency really gets into everyone's life, the way that we think it's going to do and you know by 2030 or whatever every single one of your transactions being public and visible to everyone is a very scary thing at some point and i think people are going to come back to privacy and we're actually seeing that now with some of these privacy protocols building on top of other blockchains you know you'll, there's some applications i don't know if you're familiar with like tornado.cash on ethereum or these other other things uh, that help make privacy a little bit better so i'm actually just kind of curious where have your opinions on privacy evolved from 2016 to 2021? I would actually say that for me personally, I think privacy is more important now five years forward because I actually think that cryptocurrency is going to be in more places. With much power comes more responsibility. And now cryptocurrencies look like it's going to be even more powerful. But I'm actually over the past five years kind of where where is your opinion evolved on that? And then how do you explain privacy with financial transactions to people who might be worried about that um, on blockchains? Privacy is really important. I still believe it's as important as ever, but my, I think I've gotten a bit more pessimistic about user behavior around privacy. I think it's always one of those things that people don't realize or care about um, until it's too late. Like you don't care about it till you lose it kind of a thing. Because like early on in the early internet days, like early cypherpunks were saying, hey, the internet's gonna be really bad for privacy in all these ways. We need more encryption. We need more privacy. We need PGP. And that was like a really hard struggle. And even now, like, you know, a lot of emails not encrypted, a lot of conversations not encrypted. People don't care until there's like, really, they start to see the consequences of not having privacy and how that impacts them negatively. And at that point, it's usually too late, because you've like built your whole infrastructure in a way that doesn't have privacy, right. And so now I think you've actually seen this shift start to happen with social media, like when Facebook first came out, people didn't care about privacy, you know, and then like the cultural shift has happened, like what, 10 years later, when people are finally like, oh, maybe it's bad that I have this you know, Facebook sees everything and like my, my record is totally public. They start to experience negative consequences and then they care about privacy. And at that point you've lost it and it's really hard to get it back. So I think the same thing is probably going to happen with cryptocurrencies where, you know, only up until Bitcoin has wide adoption and everyone's using it. And then like all this bad stuff starts happening to people whose transaction records are totally correlated in like an open book. And then people will start to care about privacy and then it might be hard to shift. Um, that's my fear, at least. Um, my hope is that it will be easy to shift because all of this technology has been built out and deployed and tested. And we will have also solutions that fit onto existing chains that aren't private, like, you know, Tornado Cash or whatever for Ethereum. And, you know, Zcash already exists as an alternative and all this stuff is out there. And maybe we'll be able to, like, plug the pieces together in a way to provide 
uh, useful privacy. I also don't think it's a binary thing, like either you have privacy or you don't. It's like you can have, you know, more privacy for a certain spectrum and like for certain use cases and to just like protect average people, you know, like with shielded transactions and Zcash, there was like the ability to expose a viewing key or something to show in selected parties, like parts of information about the transaction. So like, you know, more granular ways to control privacy on blockchains will be really useful in the future. And I hope whatever central bank currencies come out have like some granular privacy controls. So it's not just an open book for everyone. So there's a couple of things I want to unpack there. And you actually went to one already that I wanted to, that I want to talk about. So what responsibility do you think developers have to put privacy into their protocol? Because I think that like you are making a moral choice when you build something. The prediction here, folks, is and I think I agree with Jay, we're going to come back here in 2030 and we're going to say, man, we really wish we had used more privacy in the beginning of this, just like people feel about Facebook right now. So for the developers out there, uh, I guess, what, what do you think their responsibilities are? Is it mostly around user education? And you just mentioned the spectrum. You know, is it important to always have that choice for privacy for users? What's your personal opinion? Preach. We're open here to hearing some ideas on, on privacy. And people are looking for that type of uh, guidance here when they're building these things. I mean, I think it's really important. But also, you know, I built a social app myself. And even though I care a lot about privacy, it wasn't the first feature I implemented. And actually, you know, I had to try to get users. And I ended up never getting enough users to really you know, think it was worthwhile to implement, you know, full encryption on everything. And so I understand that privacy is often a feature that gets dropped when people are building things and trying to move fast. And yet then you come back to it later. So I actually don't know the right trade-off to be making there, but like once you get past the initial stage of like just hacking together the MVP and like, oh, now we have users, then that's a point I think you should really start thinking about privacy and thinking down the road there. All right. Well then uh, for our users out there, we would just ask, please request your applications to use privacy and put it as important on your side because we're telling you 10 years in advance, you're going to wish you had more privacy on blockchains in next decade. Just remember that that's something that it is important to take care of. One other thing you actually pulled out here, and I don't think our users know a lot about this. So zero knowledge proofs, ZK proofs. We know a lot about those here at Unsolvable Domains. We're actually working with ZK uh, rollups to help us do data compression on uh, the layer one for Ethereum to kind of make things a little bit more efficient. You thought that this could actually help with the privacy spectrum. So uh, for people at home, it's like things can be 100% private. I think they understand that. And things can be like 100% public where you can look at them on the blockchain. Where do you think that these zero knowledge math proofs come in? And I, I love these things. But where do you think that these could come in to help people have more granular control over their data? Do you, do you have like a, a go-to example that you use to explain these to people and, and where you think that could potentially be interesting for privacy, GDPR, things like that? Totally. Yeah. I think zero knowledge proofs are hugely powerful. And I think Zcash was actually one of the first major like commercial applications. Um, and it's really proved the use case because there's a giant honeypot there. You know, if they fail, um, once you deploy a, a blockchain, there's t- tons of incentive to break it. There's tons of applications beyond blockchains and even beyond like financial privacy, like one I like an example I like to use is like um, privacy around aspects of identity. So like say, for example, I want to, you know, get a loan for something and I have to prove I have certain net worth, like rather than show this person all my financial statements and everything, uh, maybe I could just submit a zero knowledge proof that like the amount in my account is over a hundred thousand or whatever, or like, you know, I want to get a drink at a bar, but I don't want to show you my real age. I could just like show you a proof that, you know, my age is over 21. And like basically zero knowledge proofs allow you to prove that the 
program was executed correctly without knowing the inputs to the program. So, you know, this program like checks your age. Like I don't have to tell you the input, which is the age I put in or like the amount of money in my account or whatever. And still on the other side, it will provide a proof that the program was executed correctly. So I couldn't have like lied about my age or something. So yeah, that's how it works for transactions. I would say that those are two really good examples. And the reason why I like this is that there's a way for you to share information about yourself without having to give that information up. And right now there's all sorts of places you interact with on the internet. And as soon as you tell them anything about yourself, they record that information forever and then they sell it to like 20 other people <laughs> like immediately afterwards. And then the next thing you know, everywhere you go on the internet, you're getting an advertisement for whatever that piece of information it is that you, that you gave that person. And I'm hopeful that zero dollars proofs can, can help, can help do that. So they're just finding all sorts of applications across blockchains throughout the whole space for all sorts of different things. And it's like, we finally have a commercial application for this really cool math we invented 30 years ago. Yeah, totally. They're useful for like, not just privacy, but also uh, compression because it's like, a hash of a program is the analogy I like to use. I want to get into the blue sky stuff that you're working on, Jay. So for listeners who aren't familiar with the blue sky project that Twitter came out and announced, can you just maybe start by talking about what is the blue sky project and why did Twitter want to develop that? Blue sky was a project that I saw Jack announce on Twitter last year, like early last year. It's an initiative to build a decentralized protocol that Twitter could become a client of. And so I think the, the scope for it actually goes beyond just building decentralized Twitter, but like a decentralized standard for like open communication that could be useful for other applications, possibly beyond Twitter. And so then a lot of people pointed out, like a lot of these things already exist. Why don't you work with Mastodon? Why don't you work with Matrix or whatever? And so when Twitter got together a volunteer group in a Matrix chat room, actually, to like discuss ways forward for Blue Sky and kind of make it more of a community driven effort, I offered to do this ecosystem review of what's already out there. So over the last summer, I went out and like researched a lot of uh, different protocols and projects out there and put together this review. And right now, I think Twitter is still hiring a project lead and hasn't fully decided what direction they're going to go with this. But the ecosystem review itself, I think, was something that didn't exist in the ecosystem. So it was great that like Twitter enabled that to happen. We'll link the ecosystem review so people can do a deep dive and read all of it. But can you just sort of summarize the key takeaways that listeners should know about from your ecosystem review? Uh, I try not to have like real takeaways in the review because I was trying to just do a really objective overview in a way that would be helpful for builders um, going in. And there's also going to be a version two out soon, I think, which might have some more updates and corrections because they didn't actually tell me before they published it. So it was <laughs> I didn't really go in there and like finalize everything. Yeah, for the most part, I think it was just a broad overview of the space. I think there's, in my mind, there's three categories of decentralized social applications. There's federated ones like Matrix and Mastodon and some others. There's peer-to-peer -peer ones like Secure Scuttlebutt and others. And then there's uh, blockchain social applications, which don't fall neatly into those categories because they just use a blockchain somewhere. And some of them use blockchains for data storage, some use them for monetization, some use them for like I don't know, I think like NFTs might classify in this category now and uh, some use them for identity, some use them for like governance. And so really like that was kind of a section unto itself, which also a lot has happened since I wrote that ecosystem review. So if I added to it, I might add more there. I think one of the things that stuck in my mind as like a takeaway though, is the really hard parts remain around like having a decentralized identity, having good moderation that's decentralized and having monetization for like D-Web stuff, not so much on the, the crypto side, but for like a decentralized social network. Okay, I love all of that stuff. Let's just take a step back real quick and talk about what is the problem with 
social platforms today, how they've become super centralized, like what what's the problem there for users and then for content creators? Yeah, I think different problems emerge um, at different scales. I think one of the biggest ones is how moderation is not being adequately dealt with because there's really just no one size fits all moderation policy for billions of users. Like some party is always unhappy with the results. And so having more community driven moderation um, delegating more to individual communities, like what Reddit does, except not with subreddits, but actually like architecturally based around maybe different communities based on different servers or in different groups could be a useful way to address that. Also, I think the platform always stands as an intermediary between creators and their audiences. And so if you could remove that intermediary who's taking a cut, then you can enable a more direct relationship and maybe let the creator like unify their audience across different platforms with like a decentralized social protocol of some sort. So I think that's a really powerful direction. But then the hard question is, you, the more you empower you know, users, the less you empower platforms, but then like, do you have a compromise which still lets platforms make some money and like survive in this disintermediated world? What would you say a social platform that's decentralized will, will look like in the future? I've been thinking a lot about this. There's a lot of decentralized social examples out there already. And so I guess the question is like, what would it look like that goes beyond what we have now? Matrix and Mastodon are actually the biggest ones because they have familiar user experience. Um, they're the federated ones. And I think a problem with both of them is they don't have portable identity. So your identity when you sign up is tied to your server and then it forwards to your new location if you move. But if your original server goes down, then you lose that identity and address. So I think having a decentralized identity that could work with a federated system would be a really powerful next step. Also, I've been thinking more about identity in the sense of MetaMask being, for example, a decentralized social identity provider. Because if you reframe the financial applications that use MetaMask as decentralized apps, which they are using this login, which gives you a decentralized ID, your Ethereum address, then it kind of starts to look like an emerging decentralized social ecosystem already. I would take it one step further and I would put on your plate, take a look at blockchain domains as potential uh, decentralized right. identities. And we're actually already seeing this happening as people log in to various applications on the decentralized web. They're actually pulling data about this person's uh, domain name. And the interesting thing about blockchain networks is I think they may be the missing identity piece that we have not had on the web. It's actually great because it's user controlled and you basically have like three ways that you could have identity work out in a decentralized ecosystem. You could have either the government can issue it. And we've seen that with Estonia and, and there's a couple other countries who are trying that as well. You could have corporations issue it and you see that with like Facebook login or Google auth or something like that. And then the last choice is you could have something that's like consumer owned and controlled and they can determine what information can be added to that identity. And in your example, like using different dApps, right, tied back to this blockchain identifier, the user gets to choose what type of information they can add. And this is something that we did for our users actually last year. They could connect in their Twitter account, right? And then they can also connect in a chat ID back to their ID. And so we may be at the very beginning stages of something kind of like emerging here on the blockchain space that, um, that I'm kind of interested in seeing this happens because then you can have a, like that single username across those different user networks. So definitely. I agree. And I actually have a question for you because, you know, I looked into handshake and unstoppable domains a bit. And I think this is a really interesting direction, particularly when you use it for like usernames maybe, and not like just exclusively like domain names. But when I think about moderation in like very peer to peer networks, 
it's the tool set is really lacking to do the moderation you need to do to prevent bad behavior at scale. So I'm curious, like what happens in a fully decentralized, like, you know, when you have decentralized domain names, because right now I think the safe thing about federated systems is they rely on the existing trust hierarchy for better, for worse of like DNS. And you have ICANN and you have these orgs that govern it. And that means you can, you know, reliably stay within like state laws and everything. But what about unstoppable domains? Like how do you do moderation with like millions or billions of users and the kind of bad behavior that emerges at scale? Yeah. So usually if you have like a really, really complex problem, like trying to coordinate communication on large teams or something like that, it's really good if you can just eliminate it entirely <laughs> and, and like take a look from a different different viewpoint. So my viewpoint would be uh, that we don't want to do moderation on the platform or protocol level. And then instead, we want moderation to happen on the application level. This is already happening. And I actually think that this is the much more natural place for it to happen. If you go into your Google Chrome browser and you type something, and I'm not going to put the words out here on the podcast, but there are certain things that you can type into Google and it's already being moderated for you. There are certain images that won't be displayed. Uh, there's certain types of just content they won't send you. If you type in something that looks like you may be you know, depressive, then they'll, they'll put a suicide hotline on your Google search results in some cases. That's an app that's already doing that moderation. And I think it's super dangerous to have protocols do that moderation. And that's, you know, of course, they're coming from the blockchain space. So I say that. And, you know, the Bitcoin protocol, they don't want to monitor and moderate your transactions. I think identity is even more core because if someone could turn on or off your identity, that could be potentially very destructive, even more than turning on and off your uh, financial life. So I think it's going to happen on the application level. Now, when I say that, that doesn't mean we're just throwing our hands up and saying, oh, there's not going to be any moderation here. We already actually already have some tools and services to help kind of monitor the, the content that we're allowing to be uploaded through our app itself, for instance. So you're right. It's a tricky, it's a tricky way to go. I do think that if you... We've just seen historically, if you put power in that layer so that people can do that type of moderation, then someone's going to force you to use that in a way that could be potentially very harmful. And if you allow it to happen on the second layer, for better or for worse, Trump has been moderated off of Twitter. But that happened at the application layer. He wasn't removed from the internet and he is still free to go and use Parler or something else. So they're alternative services, uh, but that was an effective outcome to prevent maybe some of his more uh, like enraging rhetoric that he was putting out there. So not a perfect answer, I know, but I'm open to more questions around it, Jay, if you got them for me. Yeah, maybe we can we talk about it afterwards because I find this really interesting, the, the balance between like where you put moderation, of course you need it on the client side, but then like at the protocol governance level, what is possible? And I think the interesting thing about the existing internet is it's mostly decentralized, but we have these like network governance consortiums that have emerged over time that are like human processes to govern the protocols. And I wonder if we'll just end up reinventing those if we start over and try to totally decentralize everything again. Yeah. I will say that I think we're going to end up with some very interesting on-chain voting systems in the future. And I think that what we'll get is we will get those types of moderations committees that you have on places like ICANN or whatever, but you'll just have a much greater variety of those than you have in the real world. Because right now, if you disagree with them, you, there is no recourse, really. But in a decentralized world with a lot more competitors, if you disagree with the way that one set of things is being run, you could potentially move to a, a different one and your data will be portable between these places. So it'll be easier for you to make that, to make that type of move. That's the idea. And I think competition will help drive uh, what the right solution is. 
again, coming from a very libertarian blockchain ethos, I like the idea that competition will help us moderate by having the ability to exit from these different protocols. So I think that's the ultimate long, the long term. And I think you'll have a lot more governance options is what is what I'm getting to. But again, of course, I would say something like that. I think the the network uh, governance hasn't emerged yet, just like a lot of the moderation tooling hasn't emerged in peer-to-peer stuff because it hasn't hit scale. But that is a concern I have. It, not to say it can't emerge, but I wonder if it emerges, if it will look like we're reinventing existing systems and also like what it takes to create it. Well, without disclosing too much about what we're working on at, at Ensemble Domains, working on these moderation systems for these different TLDs is a work in progress here for us. And then figuring out how we're going to allow people to participate in that process is an active piece of research. And I do think it's going to take a couple of years. And again, you know, cryptocurrency space is still very small, you know, sub million users. Uh, so we have some time to figure this out. I think we have two, three years. But you, we are already putting in place inside the new systems that we're building the ability to have uh, on-chain voting and moderation if people want to have it. And then we're also going to have some systems that just have none of that whatsoever. So we'll have some unmoderated systems, but there are we are seeing demand for people to make the moderated systems as well. Okay. Oh. <laughs> Diana, we'll pass it back to you to get us on topic here because we, we kind of went down a rabbit hole. <laughs> No, I like that. So going back to Blue Sky then, Jay, obviously there are still a lot of unknowns and a lot of potential limitations that we'll have to address and figure out solutions to moving forward. But how long do you think it'll be before Twitter becomes decentralized? I think, you know, they're probably going to hire a team to do something like this by the end of the year for sure. And then um, we'll see how long it takes. I think Twitter fully decentralizing itself. Um, I don't know what, how long of a timeline that would be. I imagine they'd probably pilot it first, like they did with Birdwatch and these other like more decentralized governance things that they've tried. I mean, it, there's already decentralized Twitter in some sense, right? Like Mastodon or something like that. So it's not a question of like, you know, could we build decentralized Twitter? It's like, how could we do it right? And with like all of these things in place and do it better than existing systems. And so that's a different question than just like, can Twitter be decentralized? Because yes, it can right now. And then do you see other social platforms following suit as well, like Facebook, Instagram, or do you see them sticking with the centralized platforms they are today? And, you know, like, how do you see that playing out? Like, will people stick with Facebook and Instagram if they stay centralized and move to these newer decentralized social platforms or all these centralized social platforms right now? Are they doomed if they stick to their guns? Uh, I think this really is going to depend on how the market dynamics play out. Like, uh, how competitive does the new ecosystem become with the incumbents? And, you know, what does that look like? I think it will shift the market landscape. I don't know what the end result of that would be. Um, I think if Facebook felt like they had to change to stay competitive, they would for sure. Something that I, I found on your Twitter that I thought was really interesting is that you created your own NFT artwork. And I think one of them just sold recently. So I just wanted to ask you about that whole process. Like what made you want to do it in the first place? Do you have an art background? First of all, how did you make the artwork? Uh, How did you, you know, get it onto, I think it's on OpenSea, if I'm correct. How did you get it minted like that? What was that whole process like? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've always like actually drawn and made art for fun, kind of just as a really niche hobby I do sometimes. And I have been drawing little memes and graphics recently to play around with different ideas I have about technology and uh, decentralization. And so I thought I would play around with NFTs and get a sense of like what these new platforms are like. And so I tried making a collection on OpenSea called Momentum uh, for Mimetic Momentum, uh, kind of devoted to the idea of mimetic acceleration, because I think 
you know, a lot of technology has not progressed as fast as 20th century futurists thought it would, but information technology definitely has. It's gone off on this exponential growth curve. And I feel like that's affecting everything that we're talking about, cryptocurrencies, social media, also AI that has taken off due to the big data that we have accumulated. Like all of this really is a destabilizing society and causing a lot of interesting changes in the market and society at large. So in playing around with these ideas, I've been making these memes as I decided, well, okay, let's try to make an NFT and see what happens. And my theory around NFTs is people are really investing in the creator and in like the future of that creator's works because um, also it's kind of in the integrity of the creator because if the person creates way too many copies, the thing will lose value. And if they don't go on to do anything else useful, the thing will lose value. But if you invested early in say, you know, a creator who later went on to become very successful as a creator, then an NFT could be like more powerful than say an early Patreon donation because then you have actually have a virtual object that like records this relationship. And it's actually kind of two ways since you can see, because a lack of privacy <laughs> lets you see who the original address was that bought it. But it's actually interesting in this case, because then, you know, maybe the creator could establish a relationship with like, the person who bought the NFT. So anyways, I'm just playing around with these ideas. And I thought, I wonder if anyone would buy my NFTs. And like, I guess it feels, I've never had a Patreon, but it feels like how it would feel if someone subscribed to my Patreon. <laughs> So did you end up promoting your NFT a lot beyond the, I saw the Twitter post, but beyond that, did you market it a lot? Did you like put in a lot of effort to get it no. sold or did it kind of just happen? No, I just, I just tweeted about it. And uh, I mean, this is like a little gif I'd made over the summer when the power was out. And so I was like, well, let's see if somebody will buy it. Also like a little diagram I made about technology acceleration. And um, yeah, I mean, I think I'll probably just keep adding to it as like, I get the inclination and like doodle out some of these ideas and, not add too many, of course, and like see where it goes in the future. I think there's a lot of interesting ideas to play around with and like different things you could do with NFTs. And like, I'm always excited to learn about things like in a hands-on way as an actual creator, not just like observing and theorizing. And I do think you get a much better feel for it when you do it yourself. I've actually got a couple questions that come back from a little bit earlier. So we were talking just briefly about local currencies uh, at the beginning of this. And it's funny that you mentioned that because that's actually a place where I got started caring about cryptocurrency because uh, I was actually, believe it or not, on Quora, like looking up like, hey, what's a cool way to create local currencies that maybe could be digital? And then that's actually how I ended up getting to Bitcoin, as weird as that is all the way back in 2012. But I'm actually kind of curious, have you seen some of these local currency projects on the blockchain? And then I know that's where you kind of started. And, and I'm wondering, you know, have you seen like universal basic income is being done on the blockchain? I guess maybe the broader question is, how do you think we can use blockchain to maybe solve some of these societal problems around financial uh, access, specifically things like local currencies or uh, UBI, for instance? You know, I, I studied Ithaca hours and some of these other things like Berkshire's that were physical currencies people printed, um, which is super interesting because it's actually very high overhead. It seems much easier to set up a digital one. But the blockchain ones I've seen, it's, you know, the hard part, even talking to the people who did like Ithaca hours back in the day, it was just getting adoption. Like they would go from merchant to merchant and get them to accept this currency. And I assume it would be the same thing for like a local cryptocurrency. It's like easier to like mint the currency, but the hard part is really getting people to adopt it. And so I, I think probably if we've seen a lack of adoption, just because that schlep was so hard. Um, also, people, most people use cryptocurrencies as like a way to speculate or like store value, like assuming that the value is always going to go up. And the point of a community currency is not really speculative in that sense, because it's much more about just keeping money within the community and circulating. So you're actually aiming to like increase the velocity of money, uh, not the, the price of the token or the, the coin. And so I think that's kind of at odds with how a lot of cryptocurrency currently works. 
Yeah, and it always seems to be this weird problem on adoption. And that's really, I think, the hack that Bitcoin figured out was like, oh, we're going to just cut the supply in half, you know, every four years on Bitcoin. And that's just really helped their adoption because the people who got in early get rewarded essentially for being early. And you have this, like you're saying, with local currencies or any of these other schemes that people try to try to like improve maybe their, their local economy just hasn't really taken off that way. Anyway, it's something more to think about. UBI is another one that people have tried. Airdrops is another one. There was a really cool one where they dropped cryptocurrency to everyone of some country and uh, no one used it, like you're just saying. Another thing you pointed out earlier, and I just have to ask. So you said you worked briefly at a cryptocurrency mine, right? And so I would actually just real quick, I want to check in. What was that like? Like, what were you doing there? Like physically plugging things in? I mean, worrying about the power going out? Kind of, what was that experience like? Because that was super early and that must have been pretty intense. One more point on actually local currencies. This is maybe a uh, depressing statement, but actually I think that they tend to take off when there's depressions. And if you like look at, you know, during like the period in which Germany had a lot of economic hardships or like um, you know, during the Great Depression in the U.S., there were tons of local currencies. So right now we're in a bull market and everyone wants speculative coins that go up. But I imagine if we had like a really bad economic crash or a really bad recession, local currencies that just allow people to buy goods and services in their community would come into vogue again. And that's when maybe digital local currencies could like become useful. And that's when people would actually want it. But anyways, I hope that doesn't happen. But, you know, if there is, that's probably like the time. Yeah, so the mine was, it was power cycling a lot of machines. It was a very DIY kind of mine. And so, I don't know, I learned to weld, built a lot of stuff ourselves. Also, I only worked part-time and I wanted to use the time to learn how to code and do other stuff. So during that time, I was like playing around with like some smart contract stuff. I think this was like, you know, maybe like a year after Ethereum had launched or something. So I was just like playing around with stuff and thinking about what I wanted to do. I was really interested in like blockchain voting systems and stuff at the time. And actually, yeah, at the time I was getting paid entirely in cryptocurrency, but then I had to spend it all on rent when I moved back to the Bay Area. And it was just like, oh my goodness, terrible investment decisions. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Jay, this next segment we call Explain Your Tweet. This is where I do a deep dive on your Twitter, call out some interesting or cryptic tweets. You have a lot of tweets that are just like really good education for people who want to learn more about the space. So I really like that. But I did find a couple that were interesting. The first one, this is from November 17, 2020. You tweeted, do you ever think about how weird it is that all possible modes of interaction between you and people you know on a site like Twitter are planned and executed by one company with little to no input from users? So this is something that we sort of talked about already. But I guess just for listeners who are a little confused about that on a decentralized Twitter, for instance, or any social platform, how do you see users discovering other users or people to follow things like that. Yeah, I was tweeting that just because I think Twitter rolled out a new feature. And I I was like, it's actually not a feature, like a a fact of software that things must work this way, that one company just like changes every tiny thing about the UI down to the button design. It's like all controlled by one company. Like it could be, you could access the same Twitter data from tons of client interfaces. And I think Twitter used to be a bit more like that with TweetDeck and stuff. But, you know, now we've just gotten so used to this, like one company controls every aspect of my experience. And it's not an inevitability of software at all. Like software is infinitely recombinable. What was a new feature that Twitter rolled out that that was in reference to? Might have been fleets or something. I forget. But it was just like a a UI tweak that was was strange that, you know, I was just reflecting on how strange it was that we didn't have tons more options. Because I think in a decentralized ecosystem, like every user might have different kinds of client that they preferred and 
be able to change things more on their end. They could be more customizable clients, like that looks like your Zanga page or something like that. <laughs> oh, you mentioned discovery of other users. Yeah, I think that's where run role that a company like Twitter could play in a decentralized social ecosystem, which is doing discovery of all these you know, disparate users and topics out there. Because in a decentralized network, the network graph gets fragmented. And so you're not going to be able to have a global view of the network from one point. And we also take that for granted about platforms now that like, yeah, I can search you know, any tweet from the main Twitter interface. But if you're on Mastodon, you can't search any tweet in the full Mastodon ecosystem from any given interface. It's very subjective. So you need something like a Google or like a Twitter that like crawls everything and then indexes and presents it to you. Um, so yeah, basically a search engine for the decentralized social web will have to exist. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, something Matt always talks about too, is when you are looking for a coffee shop to go to, like pre-pandemic, you're going to go work at a coffee shop. You have to scroll through all these user reviews to see which coffee shop, shop is good. But like, all you want to do really is see like, where are your friends going to get coffee? Where do they recommend? Because you trust their opinion more than you do the general public. And so that kind of reminded me of that, where you'll be able to discover more of the users that you want to discover and, and not what you know platforms like Twitter or Facebook want you to discover. Yeah, there's this divide between local versus global. And all of our software works more from this global perspective now with some local elements. And the decentralized software, I think, is the opposite where you have to try harder to get the global perspective. For sure, for sure. All right, the next tweet I want to call out, this is just from a couple of days ago. You tweeted, uh, th this is a long thread about you mailing out a letter and how the whole postal system is outdated. And then at the end, you say, I wonder what systems we currently rely on that future generations will look at with amazement when compared to their digital replacements, physical IDs, cash, birth certificates, I already regard letters and phone books in this way. So I was kind of just curious, like, what do you think will we'll look back on in you know 20 years and just be in disbelief about like how we used to do things? Well, I mean, it's crazy. Like China moved so quickly to digital payment systems that when you go to China and pull out cash to pay for something at a convenience store, people look at you like, well, you're clearly a foreigner, right? And so it's interesting how fast that social change can happen when it does. So I think cash, physical cash is definitely one of those things on its way out. Also, maybe physical IDs to some degree, or at least like IDs that are purely physical. Like the fact that, you know, 20... Like 19 year olds can still like get a fake 21 year old ID and like get into bars is kind of crazy, given that, you know, you could cryptographically verify it. And I don't know, have a way to like check that doesn't rely on just like a bouncer, like scanning this piece of plastic. <laughs> no, 100%. I can't tell you the number of times I've gone out and tried getting into the bar, but forgot my ID because I'm like way past the age of needing to remember that. And then I don't get into the bar. And I'm like, why well, I, can I show you like my my LinkedIn? Can I show you my Facebook? Can I prove my age in any other way besides with this physical card that I always forget to carry on me whenever I go out? So yeah, I totally get that. Yeah, when I think about the digitization of everything, I both feel like it's going to be so much better in some ways because everything will be more convenient and reliable and like certain because the reliability standards are more exacting. But I'm also scared in other ways because there will be no loopholes and no like cracks in the system. Like, you know, no places that your letters don't get mailed because it's, you know, the target will always be on you. And so when you think about like the aspects of this that might create a surveillance state, it's very concerning um, because, you know, right now, like you can, maybe it's questionable, but like 19 year olds can like get a fake ID and get into a bar or whatever. But like in a state where, you know, your phone or like your device that's always on you has like every update information about you, you would never be able to get away with that. And like how many other loopholes does society kind of like soft rely on because we kind of rely on the rules not being perfectly enforced. And when they are, what would that look like? 
That'll make the whole college experience a totally different thing, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's just one small trivial example, but there's, I think there's so many examples of things that right now there's like flexibility and leeway in the systems because like the old systems that are based on paper don't interface perfectly with like the digital world, but like soon they will. And that transition will be very totalizing. For sure. All right. Well, Jay, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate you. I learned a ton from you. Before you go, just tell people where they can find you if they want to, you know, connect with you personally, learn more about what you're working on, and then where they can go if there's information out there about the Blue Sky Project and what the volunteers are working on, where they can go to learn more about what's being worked on right now. Yeah, so I'm Jay Graber, and the handle is at Arcalinia on Twitter. I'm using my handle on most networks, um, also on Medium and GitHub. Jay Graber, I think, is my publication on Medium. I think the Twitter Blue Sky handle is where most of the updates have been published. There aren't too many frequent updates, but like the ecosystem report was published there, and I think the future updates will continue to be published there. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Jay, for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Matt, for co-hosting with me as always. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in, and we'll be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. Thank you, Diana. Thank you, Matthew. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening.